Welcome to Research Recap, our research podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In each episode of Research Recap, we'll bring you the latest industry analysis and research insights from our team of award-winning experts. Hi, I'm Joyce Chang, Chair of Global Research at J.P. Morgan, and thank you so much for joining our podcast today. I'm so pleased to be joined, along with my colleagues, Jahangir Aziz, Head of Emerging Markets Economic Research, and Jan Lois, Head of Long-Term Strategy and Strategic Research, to discuss the key takeaways from the conference we hosted at the IMF World Bank Annual Meetings, which took place in Marrakesh in Morocco. Now, at those meetings, we had a chance to meet with 80 speakers from across the official creditor, policymaking, think tank, and academic community in 35 different sessions where we discussed the outlook for the global economy. We had both macro and emerging market sessions that were country-specific. Well, what were the key buzzwords at this year's annual meetings? They were, first and foremost, resilience. But then that was followed by fragmentation and divergence. And I think what was noteworthy about these meetings, that they were the first meetings to take place since 2019 that were not about emergency action measures taken to address the COVID pandemic or the reopening of the economies. It was really a chance to sit back and look at the state of the world after we've seen record fiscal spending and record high debt. And that was really what a lot of the conversation focused on. As a starting point, the global economy has actually fared considerably better than expected a year ago, given the magnitude of the rate hikes. There was universal surprise and agreement on the unexpected resilience of the global economy. And that's not just a U.S. story, but also the larger emerging markets economies. What we have seen is that robust growth has been accompanied by some positive supply side developments that have helped bring inflation down with the risk of a near-term U.S. recession really dwindling. But I would say that the mood still was decidedly restrained. The focus was on the high cost of resilience through the external shocks as the fiscal and public deficits are at record high levels. And the rhetoric has shifted. Gone is some of this more strident tone and polarizing rhetoric about deglobalization and decoupling. There is a realization that the fallout from geoeconomic fragmentation carries high costs with a shift in the global alliances underway and that there will be a need to mobilize private capital to meet the challenges that lie ahead, most specifically the climate transition, but also the national security and the defense spending that lies ahead as well. So, Jahangir, let me just start with you on the state of the global economy today. We've seen some real relief compared to the beginning of the year and expectations now for a soft landing. But I also feel like a lot of that's already in the rear view mirror. So the global economy has shown real resilience, but we're now more focused on some of these vulnerabilities as the market attention and pressure has turned to the size of the fiscal deficit and also the record rise in public debt levels. How are you seeing the outlook, both as far as what's going well and what the vulnerabilities are? Thanks, Joyce. You know, there seems to be a lot of consensus that the world is dividing up into two parts. On one hand, you have a very resilient U.S. economy and emerging market ex-China. 
And the other hand, the two weak spots. One is the euro area and the other is China. So let me start with the resilient part of the economy. That's a good story. Look, the resilience in the US economy is very, very obvious. We just upgraded third quarter growth from 3.5% to 4.3% on the back of a very strong retail sales number in September and also manufacturing output. On top of that, we are running last three-month average of non-farm payroll at about 266000 per month, as against an expectation of 150000 The resilience is backed by excess savings in the U.S. economy, along with very low private leverage, in sharp contrast to the very high public sector leverage, which I think is the headwind, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the vulnerabilities. Those are, by the way, also the reasons as to why in the emerging market ex-China, we are seeing the resilience. We have been surprised in the upside and growth front across most of the large economies. And our sense is that this resilience will continue at least for the next six to nine months. And backing that, Joyce, is this very strong disinflation that we have seen. Again, that disinflation has been because of the normalization in the supply chain disruptions caused by the pandemic and also the disruptions caused in the U.S. labor markets. And I think these two factors are giving the sense that perhaps we might escape a hard landing. But as you rightly pointed out, that's already in the price. So what are the vulnerabilities, Jahangir? I mean, what is it that keeps you up at night? So clearly on the growth front, it is what's happening in euro area. Euro area is significant both for the U.S. in terms of its export linkages and definitely for emerging markets. So in euro area, we're seeing consumption very, very soft, and that is driven by a very sharp rise in precautionary savings driven by the uncertainties created by the Ukraine war. That's on the consumer's front. On the corporate side, the fact that energy prices, even though they've come down, they're significantly above pre-pandemic levels is seriously questioning the industrial structure of Germany and Northern Europe. And then, of course, there is China. And I think the weakness in Chinese growth, which is a combination of misdirection and fiscal policy, languishing business sentiment, I will also throw in the impact of the U.S. sanctions, it isn't that things are not stabilizing. The last few data points have shown that the Chinese economy is stabilizing. But if I look forward, there isn't very much we can talk about in terms of 2024 and 25 in the absence of serious U-turn in these policies. Jahangir, thank you for laying out the state of the global economy. And I want to turn to Jan Lois right now because I want to talk about term premium and real rates, because here's where we've seen a real repricing. So, Jan, let's talk about the cost and the consequences of resiliency, because we have seen growing concern on record high fiscal deficits and public debt and no political willingness to address this. What does this mean for the term premium and real rates going forward? Well, the big cost of resilience is that there's no free lunch to operating an economy without excess capacity, already operating above capacity. If somebody spends more, then other people need to be crowded out through the process of higher prices, higher interest rates, probably also higher dollar. Resilience means that the economy is resisting the efforts of the Federal Reserve to weaken growth to get inflation down. Simply means that Fed will have to do more. Lower corporate taxes, weaker equities, and then emerging markets are probably going to get hurt by it also. Now, one sector of the economy that is unwilling to go up with spending is the government. 
the government is on autopilot with respect to spending. So that means a bigger deficit, higher debt levels. It's not uncontrollable. It is simply not controlled because neither side of the aisle really wants to cut spending or raise taxes. So the message has not gotten through that the government needs to change its spending pattern. I suspect it will require higher bond yields even. We're already, I think, at a long-term fair value at the moment. We're probably going to be overshooting it. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Jahangir, let me come back to you. What does that mean for the medium-term outlook? You talked about this relief we've seen in the near term, but we're in this environment where inflation is going to be above target in certain places. So when you look at this combination of higher-term premium, possibility of overshooting, how do you think this is going to affect the global economy over the medium term? So I think in the world economic outlook, the IMF described medium-term growth as limping. And I think that's a very fair description. So far, what we've seen is that apart from U.S. and Taiwan, in almost every economy in the world, while labor markets have all returned to their pre-pandemic trend, the level of GDP is significantly below the pre-pandemic trend, which means that labor productivity is actually lower today than it was in the pre-pandemic period. So, I think there is a permanent scarring. One can argue that, well, the reason why U.S., for example, has managed to deliver this productivity growth is because it has the most efficient and flexible labor market and capital market, and the other countries will follow with the lag. But I think that that might not be the case this time around, given that they are facing, as you rightly pointed out, and so did Jan, that this is a period very different from what we have seen post-GFC. This is a period in which rates are going to be higher for longer. And the problem, Joyce, is that we really don't know what higher for longer does to balance sheets, what it does to economies. We know that if you spike interest rate by 500 basis points, that's the impact. But we don't really know that if you keep interest rate at 500 basis points above for a long period of time, what it does. So I think that's one of the biggest uncertainties going forward as to why I would say that limping or subpar growth probably is something that we have to live for for some time. But Joyce, let me turn to you about something that we talked about in the conference. This was geopolitics and it was a fragmentation. In your opening remarks, you said that compared to the previous IMF World Bank meetings where we would have our conferences, the rhetoric around fragmentation, deglobalization has come down, but it's still there. Just recently, we've seen the U.S. intensifying its technological restrictions on China again. And at the same time, geopolitics is probably worse today than it was even a year back. We not only have the Ukraine war still unresolved, we also have a new war in the Middle East. And of course, there is a continued U.S.-China tension. So how do you look at both geopolitics and this change in rhetoric and fragmentation? Look, the geopolitical risks are much greater and the headwinds are much higher than what we saw even a year ago. So this geoeconomic fragmentation is here to say, and it really is shifting global alliances. What I thought was really noteworthy out of Marrakesh was the multilateral institutions really stressed their role in trying to prevent the weaponization of global interdependence. Because for all of the geopolitical risks, the global economy is very connected and and the rise of industrial policy has led to all of these consequences over the medium term, which do point to 
higher inflation, higher deficits, more macro volatility going forward. We're far from a fully fragmented world right now, but what we're seeing is a clear feedback loop between the geopolitics driving economics and the economics driving geopolitics. And that is shifting global alliances here. A lot of the research we heard, like the World Trade Organization, estimate that trade fragmentation could result in long-term losses that are around 5% of global GDP and much higher losses for emerging markets within that. And not just within trade itself, but over-concentration of supply chains, which has led to the export restrictions and the sanctions that you've mentioned. Europe is struggling and Americans are losing their geopolitical influence. There's really not a coherent transatlantic approach to China because within Europe, you see a big division. Portugal, Romania, Turkey see China as a partner. Germany, the Netherlands and Italy see China as a competitor. And the U.S. and the U.K. see China as a rival. But I'd say that what really also stood out is that emerging markets have become the new swing states. They are demanding a seat at the table. The BRICS nations are looking to expand their influence. The BRICS Plus included six new members. They have Russia as the chair of the 2024 BRICS Plus Summit. We are seeing the shift in alliances. Now, we've talked about deglobalization, but de-dollarization was a hot topic earlier this year. I think that that is one where everybody acknowledged that it's overblown, but we are certainly seeing invoicing and other currencies that is occurring around the world. But there are still certain features of the U.S. system that just don't exist to the same extent anywhere else in the world. So fragmentation is there, but we also see that multilateral institutions are trying to counter some of this. And there has been a step away from some of this more strident rhetoric, decoupling, de-dollarization, deglobalization. Let me come back to you, Jan, because I want to ask you what you're recommending for the long-term investor for your strategic asset allocation recommendations, since the fundamental factors do point to this higher volatility, overshooting, higher term premiums that are going to stay with us? Well, the main thing that happened this year is the bond market has repriced lower prices, higher yields. So your entry point massively has improved in the bond market, while the equity market, if anything, has gotten a bit more expensive. The main implication is that for the longer term investor, the excess return on equities over fixed income is simply narrowed. A lot of investors have abandoned 640 because there was such a low return, a future return on bonds. That is no longer the case. The high grade market by now in the US is promising a bit over 6%. And the equity market is priced for seven and a half over the next decade. So uncomfortable being in 60-40 at the moment. The overall long-term strategic, as opposed to the shorter-term tactical, for me, is still dominantly equities. Uh, I start with a global equity fund, largely in what we call MSCI world. I add some emerging markets. I do see emerging markets quite vulnerable to climate. First, from global warming, they're already getting hurt and their governance is not necessarily made up for that. Beyond that, I'd say, yes, with climate, the biggest risk out there, a broad portfolio of climate funds makes sense. A bit of value, we still see a decent chance of coming back. Now, Joyce, if I can come to you, we are all talking about higher for longer. 
and for emerging markets, I think we should recognize that probably means harder for longer term. And quite a few emerging markets need to have their debt restructured. They have enormous climate needs for adaptation, mitigation, building walls, moving cities, and the like. They simply don't have any amount of money comparable to what is needed. So they need to pull in private capital. What is the potential of the multilateral public investment banks getting together with the private sector to help fund emerging markets for climate and for debt restructuring? Well, thanks for that question, Jan, because the clear message we got from the multilateral institutions is that they are going through a period of reform. These institutions were created after World War II, and the key objective is to mobilize private capital and crowd in private capital to meet the development needs during this period of real regime change. So the numbers we heard were astronomical. I mean, the IMF estimates that emerging markets and developed economies will need like $3.4 trillion in additional spending or about five and a half percent of GDP to finance development goals and the climate transition vulnerable frontier market countries need percentages that are much higher than the advanced economy and the middle-income emerging markets countries. And this is where we saw the biggest disconnect between the market participants and the official creditors. With the surge in real rates, the rise in term premium, there's a real crowding out problem for emerging markets, which had already been coming into this period having experienced significant capital outflows. Just since the beginning of last year, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen from emerging markets fixed income around $100 billion of outflows, you know, even to where we are today. But now when we take a look at some of the relative value comparisons, you can get 6.2% for owning U.S. high-grade corporate bonds. The yield for the emerging markets local currency index is 6.7%. Even when you talk about the most vulnerable frontier markets that are restructuring, it's like, oh, well, their yields are so high, it's 13%. That's where private credit is today. And so I think the biggest concern from the market participants was that there is really this disconnect between the numbers that have been outlined by the official creditors and the realities of the market right now. If you can stay in short-term cash and get five and a half percent, are you going to really reach out the curve? We still have questions on how tenable is it that the soft landing is going to hold? We have very heavy election cycles that are coming up, and we still have a world where we're not back to target on inflation, and we have record high fiscal deficits and debt. This is where we saw the most questions here, and maybe that's a good note to end the conversation. We had this unexpected resilience that was a dominant theme, and emerging markets actually managed this period quite well. But we have this recognition of the fragmentation and divergence and the post-pandemic realities going forward. With policymakers unwilling to force fiscal consolidation, the market pressure is going to remain very high. Bond vigilantes are on alert here, and that's going to keep pressure on U.S. Treasuries, especially longer out the curve, crowding out some of the funding options for emerging markets. So overall, I came away with the view that investors are not necessarily prepared for the medium term. What does higher for longer mean for the balance sheets over the medium term? You still could see a possible recession materialize by 2025 alongside greater geopolitical risk. Those are a few of my concluding thoughts. 
But I really wanted to just say thank you so much, Jahangir and Jan, for joining us for this podcast. Thanks, Joyce. Thanks, Joyce. And great to be with you, Jahangir. Thanks for listening to Research Recap. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read J.P. Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved.